This afternoon, we'd like to open God's Word in Romans 7, where we'll read from verses 14 through to 8, verse 2, and our text is Romans 8, 3, and 4. Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not, will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And here's our text. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. After the proclamation of God's Word, we praise God with the words of hymn 50, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, contrary to what you might think and expect, seminary, if I can put this plug in for the seminary, seminary is actually kind of a fun place to be. I mean, last winter, with my senior students, we spent three hours a week puzzling through the deeper passages of Romans, the troubling passages, like Romans 9 to 11, this piece about Israel. What are we going to make of that? Paul's saying the grace of God is so amazing, uh, the possibility of a, a conversion, a significant conversion among the Jews is really there. That's the conclusion we came to. Another controversial passage was this passage of Romans 7. Who is this person who 
wills to do all these things and does not, is not able to do them. And uh, some have said for, for a long time, this is, this is uh, Paul before he was converted. And, and that was a position for, for a long time, and a lot of people still hold that position. But they actually come into trouble with certain portions of this passage because, I mean, in Romans 7, verse 14, it says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Well, that, that's a problem for the other side of the, of the coin because the rest of the people said, no, this is Paul the Christian. He, he wills to do what is right, but he can't quite do it all. And, and so this is Paul the Christian. Augustine, for example, uh, started off with the one position, but then changed his mind when he was arguing with Pelagius and, and said, no, it, it must be the other position because, look, this cannot be Paul the Christian because of what it says in 14, I'm carnal, sold under sin. If you remember anything about Romans 6, I think I preached on that one in July, but if you remember anything on that, we, we talked about how we have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Your Lord's Day 1 comes from there, and how you've been bought with the blood of Christ. So, so how can you be the Christian and yet be sold under sin? How could you be this new person of Romans 6 who has died and been buried and raised with Christ and yet be carnal and sold under sin? And so this was a heated debate for, for many classes. And, and then after that, usually after that, often after that, I would come to the church where most of the students are and I'd preach on the passage that we had puzzled over. And so seminary is a fun place to be. And to have the privilege of being able to study the Word of God with a group of dedicated young men, wow. But as I was preparing, trying to you know, some people say, we never hear ministers preach on Romans 7. Well, this is about Romans 7, because I concluded that Romans 8, verse 3 and 4, is probably the best summary of Romans 7 that you can ever find. Because what is it saying? It's saying the questions are different in Romans 7. The question is not, who is this I? When you read this question, who is this I in Romans 7, you'll never get out of the question. You'll never find a suitable answer. And that's your first clue to the possibility that maybe that's not the question that Paul is asking. Maybe it's another question. And I think it is. We do the same thing, by the way, with Genesis 1. We, we ask it all kinds of questions today from our century that Moses never was trying to answer. When you're asking the wrong questions you get the wrong answers. You don't understand. It's like having a conversation. I'm talking about one thing and, and you're hearing all kinds of other stuff. You're not really listening and you're not really conversing either because these two people are going in different directions. Well, what are the questions that Paul is talking about in Romans 7? These questions. What about the law? Instead of reading the chapter thinking, who is this I? Read the chapter thinking, what is this Paul saying about the law of God? And secondly, the question is, what is he saying about the flesh? Those are the two questions. What is he saying about the law? What's he saying about the flesh? And then you come to see that that first phrase of Romans 8 verse 2 is summarizing Romans 7 for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. 
God did. The message of the Word of God comes to you this afternoon. Our only hope for the Christian life is in what God has done. We'll talk about the place of the law, the problem of the flesh, and the power of the Spirit. The place of the law, problem of the flesh, power of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul actually has had quite a lot to say in Romans about the law. He doesn't say a whole lot that's particularly good in the sense that it helps us. In chapter 3, he told us, the law reveals sin. In 3 verse 20, he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. It doesn't say good things about me. He also says that there is simply uh, is no one, that, that, that the, the law will never gain anyone's salvation. You can try to live according to the law your whole life long, but if all you've got is the law, you will never gain salvation. Romans 3 verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. In chapter 4, he makes the point that it's not law that determines membership in the people of God. He says in 4 verse 14 that it's not the adherents of the law who are to be heirs of the promise to Abraham. Imagine saying that to this Jewish people who pride of, them, pride of themselves on their fasting, on their circumcision, on their keeping of the law. He says, it's not the adherents of the law who are to be heirs of the promise to Abraham, but it's a matter of being one who shares the faith of Abraham. He also says, therefore, verse 15, the law brings wrath. In chapter 5, he says the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, it makes everybody guilty. In chapter 6, he makes the point that it's not being a slave to the law that's going to bring about a Christian life. Rather, it's being slaves to the righteousness that comes through having died and having been raised with Christ. For you, says Paul, are not under law but under grace. Thanks be to God, because if you were under law, sin would still be your master. You would never get away from it, but you are under grace, and grace can save you. At the beginning of chapter 7, he says, law just serves to arouse our passions. 7 verse 5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members while we were living in the flesh. How long do we live in the flesh? Your whole life long. While we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. Well, now, by this time, people are saying, well, if the law can't do any of these things, then why do we even have the law? Is the law maybe sinful? Is it against the gospel? Why do we even have this? And then when you think about Paul's opponents, Maybe you know that Romans 3, verse 8, there's this accusation against Paul that he's actually fighting the whole time he's writing Romans, and the accusation is that he is promoting evil because, you see, he said to Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised. He said about certain parts of the law, this doesn't apply anymore. And Jewish people said, hold it, this must apply, and you must be promoting evil. And Paul says, they are slanderously charging me with this, and their condemnation is deserved. Well, those people would be very interested at this point because Paul said all these negative things about the law. So Paul is, must be a heretic. Is Paul soft on the law? They want to say he is. 
what they want to say is, what we need is more law. What we need is more wrath. We need to hit them with the law. Because it's essentially the same discussion as comes up in Lord's Day 23, Lord's Day 24, justification by faith. It talks about through grace alone. And then what about good works? Don't, doesn't grace make people careless and lazy because it's all by grace? And then the catechism says, no, it's impossible that those who are saved by grace and rooted in Christ should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. But the question is then, is Paul soft on the law? What is his answer? There are all kinds of comments, also in Romans 7. To the contrary, he's not soft on the law. It begins already in 7 verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. It continues in verse 12. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. And verse 22, I delight in the law of God. Paul makes it clear that his complaint is not with the law, even though it's not very powerful. His complaint is not the law. He shares the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 119 who never stops reciting the beautiful things about the law and how he loves to meditate on the law, on the Torah of God. But even in the New Covenant, you really can't maintain the view which says now we're all in the period of grace and the gospel and we don't have anything to do with the law because the law comes back. The law in the new covenant is much like the law in the old covenant. God delivers his people and then says, in order to stay in that, look out for these things. And the same thing happens in the New Testament because Galatians, uh, Romans 13, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4 you can't possibly make sense of those passages if you don't understand the law behind them. All Paul's ethical commands are rooted in the law of God. Paul says, do this. He sees it through the, through the lens of Jesus Christ, but he's going back to the law. Do this because the law says this. If, if you want to say the law has no relevance for the Christians at all, the law cannot help us at all, you might as well rip Romans 13, Colossians 3, and Ephesians 4 out of your Bible. Nor should we be surprised about that. Because what does our Lord Jesus do on the Sermon on the Mount? What is He doing except expounding for us the law as no Jewish person ever did? Exodus 19, Exodus 20. In Exodus 19, the people of God come together before God on the mountain, and then Exodus 20, God gives them the law. Matthew 4, the end of Matthew 4, read that geographical description. All of Israel is together, the people from, from the Decapolis and from Galilee and from, 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 the, from the Dead Sea area and from Judea, they're all together, and then Jesus is on the mountain and He gives to them His interpretation of the law. And he says, think not I've come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it, to fill it up to its fullest possible meaning in His person and in His work. And then he teaches them how to read the law, how to read it in all its depth. Don't pat yourself on the back because you haven't committed adultery lately. Have you looked at a woman lustfully? You've committed adultery. The law has its place as a reminder of sin. 
as an aid for encouragement in Christian living, as a demarcation line for when we've gone askew and when we're on the Christian path. The law has a place as an instrument to humble us on a Sunday morning so that we might acknowledge our sin and our foolishness. The law itself, Paul says, is holy and righteous and good. But it's limited because Paul says, what's the problem then? The problem is not with the law. The problem is with you and me. The problem is human flesh. Paul summarizes that when he says in verse 3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. We are sinful people. And the law can't save you, not because the law is so awful, but because you and me, we are so desperate. And that's what Romans 7 is saying again and again. I can will this, but I can't do it. I can want to do this, but I can't do this. Because ultimately, who is this, this I of Romans 7? Well, it really can't be a Christian person. It can't be limited to a Christian person. It, it involves, we'll see, it involves a Christian person, but it can't be limited to that, nor can it be limited to, uh, to, to a, to a non-believer. Because what is the eye? The eye is the eye of fallen humanity. The eye is everybody who's flesh. The eye reflects the moral struggle of any person confronted by the law and becoming aware of his own inability to do this. It's not the law that causes sinning. It's the flesh. It's fallen humanity. This is the major struggle of fallen humanity, wanting to do better but unable to do it. Flesh is the moral weakness of the human condition. All your life long, you have to do with flesh. Deep down, the struggling eye of Romans 7 wants to be obedient to God's law, but his desire is all messed up by the flesh, which is such a traitor in the camp. Every time he wants to do what is good and knows he should, his flesh is the problem. His or her brokenness, my brokenness, is the issue. Sin lies close at hand. That's why, in a sense, the eye can be anybody and everybody. There have been those who proposed a third way. They say, well, it's not Paul before his conversion. It's not Paul the Christian. It's Paul the Old Testament saint. The Jewish person who's outside of Christ. Now, that gained some traction. And it's not surprising because Jewish people have a long-standing appreciation of the law and quite some awareness of the problem of sin and the flesh. The struggling eye of Romans 7 is not unlike the penitent person in the Psalms who, who begs the Lord not to hold their sins against them and pleads for mercy in the face of judgment. The eye is pathetic, powerless, recognizes a wretched condition, cries out in 7 verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously nobody can until he comes to the realization that there is one who can, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The truth is, something of what Paul is talking about is true, not only of Old Testament saints, but of all people, regardless of their race, regardless of their religion, regardless of their color. Think about it. We are living at a time when if you're speaking with someone who knows nothing about Christianity, nothing about the Lord Jesus, does not ever set foot in the church, and you start talking about sin and and, and law, and you start throwing Moses at them, they'll think, what kind of planet did you just come from? But most people are aware that they don't quite live up to everything they possibly could be and everything they possibly could do. And if maybe they're proud about what they do, I'm a good man, member of this and that, you know, then they at least are aware of the fact that the world is broken. Just think about the world of politics, and they will acknowledge with you, the world is broken. Think about people starving and and, and trouble and war and bloodshed. Think about bloodshed on the streets of Toronto or the streets of Fredericton of all places, and they will acknowledge the world is broken. This world is not as it ought to be. C.S. Lewis put it, God has created humanity with a sense of moral oughtness. Certain things ought to be and certain things ought not to be. Who will disagree with that? Deep down, everybody has a sense of inadequacy and failure and brokenness. It's the sense of anxiety and powerlessness that leads them to seek comfort in the things that enslave them instead. This is where addictions come from. We, we go somewhere else because we see all this brokenness and we end up being addicted to sex or money or pleasure or power. Addictions take over instead of God. And then a passage like Romans 7, can even help a person who does not really believe. Reading this, they might say, yeah, I don't quite do what I ought to do. I ought to be a better fellow. I am a slave of my lusts. I'm a slave of my work and a slave of my possessions. People need to be brought to the point where they identify themselves as the I who does the very things they don't want to do and does not do the things they want to do. Behind that, the Spirit of God can be working and bringing them to the point where they cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? But also, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here as Paul moves us on to what can be the human experience through exposure to the gospel. And what Paul writes there is not irrelevant to the Christian either. As long as we're on this side of the grave, as long as we're still in the flesh and still aware of the moral weakness of our human condition, if there is material in Romans 7 that resonates with with, with the unbeliever, this material resonates also with with the Christian because the sense of moral oughtness in a person is never more acute than when we are God's children. We know so much more about what we could do and do not do, who we could be, who we are in Christ, and how we are a poor imitation of who Christ is. We know we haven't arrived. Are there not times in our lives when we want to cry out, what a stupid fool I am, what a wretched man I am? I've said it before, 
If you are not the biggest sinner you know, you don't know yourself very well. You know. I think nobody else knows. I don't share all my dreams, all my wishes, all the things that I've done, all the things that I could possibly do if I was given the leeway to do it. Because it's kind of ugly in there. If you are not the biggest sinner you know, you don't know yourself very well. Sense of moral oughtness ought to be very acute for us, the people of God. We ought to know that it's not somebody else that needs grace and needs forgiveness and needs Christ and the Spirit of God. It is me. And not just for a while, but to the very, very end. But what Paul is trying to make clear through these chapters is that better Christian living, freedom from a gnawing conscience, an ability to come closer to what we ought to be is not going to come about through self-willpower and whatever else we can muster through the flesh. It's not going to come about either just through hammering the law and the law and the law. Even for ourselves, it's good to be reminded, it's not just by reading the law every Sunday that God's people are going to behave. We're often quick to say, oh, that wasn't a bad church. But they don't understand the law. They don't read the law. Tell me if they preach the gospel. If they preach the gospel, they must understand the law. Because without the law, you can't understand the gospel. But the point is, there is only one thing that will bring us to a higher niveau. And this is Paul's answer to his opponents. There's only one thing that will bring the people of God to a higher niveau where they become fertile soil for the gospel and they become productive in every way. And, and that, that one thing is not the law, but it is the gospel of God's grace. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could not do this. Romans, Galatians 2, verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. It's impossible for your righteousness to come about through the law. Only the gospel will do this. And what is the gospel? This is the gospel. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice there are at least four things that God had to do to bring us to this better Christian condition, and none of them include the law. First, he had to send his own son. It's Paul's Christmas message. It implies the son had to leave his pre-existent incarnate, his pre-incarnate condition and his intimacy that he enjoyed forever with the Father and the Spirit and come into our world. God had to send the son into this world. Second, he had to come how? He had to come in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. With that, Paul means the Lord Jesus had to be as like us as he possibly could be without becoming sinful. He was just like us, sin accepted, but he had to be flesh. Why did he have to be flesh? Because the law said, Romans 7 said, flesh was the problem. And Romans 7 said, the law won't do it. Flesh was the problem. So he had to send his own son in the flesh. And then he says, on account of sin. The point here is, Jesus did not just come to come and be a better example for us. We needed more than an example that we could just follow. A sacrifice had to be made. A price had to be paid. A sacrifice because of our inadequacies, our mistakes, our inabilities to be what we ought to be. Someone had to pay, and He paid for us. And in that way, fourthly, He condemned sin in the flesh. It was flesh that sinned and flesh that needed to pay. Thanks be to God, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. Exactly that which was the problem, not the law, but the flesh, my flesh, your flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. As someone put it, Jesus sucks the poison of sin from us and draws its vile venom into His own flesh where it is denounced and defeated. Or in the words of another, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation since the condemnation we deserve has already been fully borne for us by Christ. Sinful flesh is the problem for everybody. The Jew, the unbeliever, the Christian, and the law can't solve it. If flesh is the problem for all, the one single solution is found in the Christ and died, who came and died in the flesh. That's why at bottom, you can never expect the law to do what only the gospel can do. That is why it's fine if we keep on reading the law, but don't expect the law to do what only the gospel can be do can do. We should be churches that are alive with the gospel. And thank God for every church that's alive with the gospel. We should be, we should be homes that are alive with the, with the gospel. And even in our homes, we should be grace-based churches, but we should be grace-based home as well. You can never expect in your home that the law can do what the gospel will do. Don't just tell me whether your kids know the law, tell us whether they know and experience the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that and that alone will shape them to be the kinds of people that God wants them to be and that Christ died for. The NLT, actually, the New Living Translation, puts this passage very well when it says, the law of Moses, one us unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son 
as a sacrifice for our sins. The end of sin's control over us. Wow. And then to see how far Paul wants to push that, notice the rest of verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Wow. You know, it's truly amazing when you read the Gospels and you think about the life of our Lord, how He absolutely fulfilled and never broke any of the commandments and fulfilled every one of them. We call this in the theological world the, the act of obedience of Jesus Christ. In other words, before Jesus could possibly passively obey the law and die a death, he had to live a perfect life. He had to be actively obedient before he could passively be obedient and die that perfect death. But you know what this is saying? This is saying that something of that act of obedience comes in us when we're fueled by the gospel. Because this is what Paul says. He doesn't want you to be saved by the law, but he does want the law to come up later on. He says that the righteous requirement of the law might be, not just appear in us, but might be fulfilled in us. who Don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Think about that. That's a truly astounding statement. Back in Romans 7, we, we never thought we'd get there. But look what he says. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Paul is saying the reason Jesus came into this world is not just to take away your sins and put them in the ground where, you'll, where they'll never be in the face of God again, but the reason Jesus came is not just to do away with your sin, but also to help you to be this better person who you can be in Jesus Christ. The reason Jesus came was not just so that you and I might have happy lives and, and be wonderful and all that sort of stuff, but the reason Jesus came was so that we might begin to fulfill the, the law and, and, and the requirements that seem so very impossible. Paul is saying this was impossible according to the flesh. This was impossible according to the law, but it's possible according to the Spirit who lives in us. And with that, Paul is, is, is moving on. Back in 1 verse 5, he talked about the obedience of faith, and we wonder, what is he talking about? But he means this faith that eventually is going to bring about this obedience, because the grace of God does that. He told us in Romans 6 that to be under grace instead of under law did not mean freedom to sin. In all the world, the gospel is the only answer to sinful human ought. You see, the gospel is not just about sending souls to heaven, as important as that is. It is also about redeeming and renewing God's people so that already here and now, they might have new and better law lives. This is an amazing point. As Tim Keller puts it at one point, he says, the thing Jesus lives and dies for, the purpose of His entire life is to make us holy He's not busy making sure that you will be happy. He's busy making sure that you will be holy. 
fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. This is the greatest possible motive for living a holy life. Whenever we sin, we aim to frustrate the aim and purpose of the entire life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died so that you would have a better life, and in that better life, you would live a, to the glory and praise of God like you never could by the power of your flesh. And you never could according to the power of the human law. The reason Jesus lived and died is to make you a new person who would have a new life. And in that new life would be a better wife and a better husband. To give you a life you never imagined you could live the reason the Spirit has given to us is to make us better fathers and mothers to our children in the home, a better and more ethical businessman out there, a better and more faithful office bearer in here, a better student, better at whatever you're given to do, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. No wonder Paul says so, ever, so, so often, he says, whatever, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It makes me think of Paul's word to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Why? Just to get them to heaven? No. Training us to renounce ungodliness and training us to renounce worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age as we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the, and the glory of our great God and Savior who gave himself for us to redeem a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It means the end of all our excuses. It means the end of saying, well, I can't do this because you see I'm a sinful person and I'm married to a sinful person. End of all our excuses. Whenever we imagine that the Spirit of God is not enough, then I would remind you of another passage. You read the rest of Romans 8. It's all about the Spirit of God. But another passage Paul gives to Timothy. Timothy uh, Timothy's a young man in Ephesus. He's got to start up a church and, and, and pastor a church. And Paul's an old man who's dying. And Paul says, God, I want you to know this, Timothy. God gave us a spirit of Tim, not of timidity and of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. If you imagine that you as a Christian are unable to do this, have you forgotten that God gave us a spirit of power? If you as a Christian imagine that you aren't able to be loving enough to love that man or love that woman, have you forgotten, the, forgotten that God has given us a spirit of love? Are you giving us the excuse that, well, you know, I'm pretty corrupt? Have you forgotten? God has given us a spirit of self-control. Woe to you if you deny the reality of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and then deny that even further and make it even worse by denying the power of the Spirit of God.
Perhaps it all comes down to this. Do you remember what Paul said at the beginning of Romans 6? He said, there are some things we need to know. We need to know that we have died with Christ. We have been risen with Christ. We were buried with Him. We were united to Him. His death was our death. And then he also says, we need not only to know those things, we need to reckon them so. I am this new man in Christ. Yes, the flesh poses its problem all life long, but I'm this new man in Christ. I need to reckon this so. The greatest tragedies of the Christian life happen when Christian people fail to reckon these wonderful new realities as true of them. When I fail to, to reckon it so, I say things I shouldn't say. I do things I shouldn't do. I fail to act like the person who is in Christ. Then I became, become again and again like that eye of Romans 7 and the wretched man language begins to resonate in me again. And I need the gospel again. I need God's grace again and His mercy because then maybe I get some peace. The cross and the blood of Jesus, there is no other way under heaven. Amen.